0: Well, we're finally in the last section of Exodus. I think we started in, what, September? Hopefully, um, as you study scripture in life, you more and more come to realize that the scriptures are not just uh, spiritual information for spiritual matters, but that they relate to all of life, and they have something to say about all of life, even modern life. Uh, Next week, I'll spend some time on this, but... In Exodus, you could pull out politics. There's lots that, that Exodus has to say about people are to, how people are to organize and relate to one another. Uh, Exodus tells us about the goal of human history, about where it's gone and where it's, where it's headed. Uh, it tells us things about economics, about how resources are to be used, and how we're to think about our resources. You could find in the book of Exodus uh, a philosophy And economics, you could find something related to all of the questions of life. It addresses the nature of freedom, which is never something we're not interested in. So Exodus covers all these things. And again, I want to touch on maybe each one of those themes just a little bit next week. Because whenever I finish a book, I don't know if you feel this way, but whenever we finish a series, I always think I've just begun to get into that book. And hopefully that's the way you feel with the scriptures because uh, they continue to unfold great riches. But tonight I do want to wrap up our story. And so I have to remind us because it's been a little bit now. uh, It's been a while uh, since we've been in Exodus. So I want to remind us of where we were. Uh, Remember, we'll just start with the beginning of the book. God's people that he intended to be his solution to what's wrong with the world were slaves in Egypt. They had multiplied. There were many of them, but they were slaves. They were in no position to be his instruments. And he heard their cry. And so the book of Exodus, you could summarize it this, taking them from the house of slavery to his house, taking them from the house of Pharaoh to come to his house and to be his people. And the book has been this unfolding of this story. God has treated Israel, his people, as his only son. And told Pharaoh, if you do not let my son go, I will smite your son. God has invited Israel to be his bride at Mount Sinai. He's invited them into covenant with him uh, there on the mountain. He himself spoke the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words to them, to be their declaration of independence, to be their constitution to be, as James says, their perfect law of liberty, the outline of the kind of people he wants them to be in the world so that they can be his answer to what's wrong with the world. And he has told them that he wants to come close and dwell in their midst, and that they are called to build a house for that very purpose, so that he can come and dwell with them. And of course, the golden calf and the sin of the golden calf is what stopped all that. In fact, it's the great crisis of the whole book. You might think that the crisis is whether they're going to get out of Egypt. That is important. But the big crisis is, will God still dwell with this people who have broken the most important commandments? Will God still dwell with this people? We can think of the sin of the golden calf like Adam and Eve's sin at the garden. It was foundational. It was right there at the beginning. It was when everything was going great. When they had everything they needed and had been cared for in every possible way. It is then, right then, when Moses is receiving these designs for this wedding house that he is, that God wanted to dwell in with his people, that they commit adultery. They make a graven image. They take the Lord's name in vain and say, behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt. They attempt to murder God, as it were, by setting an idol in his place. It is the worst possible tragedy. It is the worst possible rebellion. And Moses' intercession is so key because what it does is it reveals the heart of God. It reveals the character of God. God says, listen, I'm, I'm not going to dwell with this people. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses intercedes. What will the nation say? And God says, fine, but I'm going to send you on without me. I'm not going to be in your midst. And Moses says, then what is the point of us if you're not in our midst? And finally, God reveals his name, the Lord, the Lord, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, long-suffering. The revelation of the character of God, who he is, is at the heart of the turning point of Exodus. It is there that Moses hears of God's name, who finds out who God is. And it is there that he can understand why God would be willing to bear with this people, it is in the midst of that crisis that God shows himself. And again, this is the turning point of the book. This, his character, who he is, is what makes possible that he will dwell with them. Not that they've obeyed the Ten Commandments. Not that they look like promising material with which God could turn the world upside down. But who he is. God doesn't find promising material. He takes unpromising material and turns it into gold. And that's what's going on in these chapters. So right after God has said, okay, I'm going to dwell in their midst and I want you to build this house. This is where our text picks up in 34.5. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart, and let him bring the Lord's contribution. And he lists all the materials. Remember... There's five chapters of God outlining the plans for the tabernacle before, the, burning, or before uh, the golden calf. And now we have five chapters of the detail of it. Why all the column space to this? 30% of the book of Exodus is descriptions of the tabernacle. Why? Because the goal of history is a homecoming because it's God's intention to dwell with the creatures that he made. And the tabernacle is the beginning of that plan. The goal of history is for God to dwell with them. And notice what happens because they've seen the character of God, because they know who he is, they've gotten a glimpse of who he is. They give contributions from generous hearts. They can carry out the plan, the plan that was about to be scrapped they can carry forward the plan and it describes that they're that they're bringing these offerings with generous hearts all right this is so key that they're not bringing these out of guilt they're not bringing these out of fear they're bringing these out of gratitude that god is willing to be their god and for them to be able to for him to be able to dwell in their midst 3520 then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses And everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used in the tent of meeting and all for its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were who were of a willing heart on down in verse 26, all the women whose heart stirred them to use to use skill spun goat's hair. And then finally at the end, verse 29, all the men and women and the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done by it as a free will offering. Do you see a theme here? Their, their hearts moved them. Their spirits moved them. They were motivated by what God had done and by who God was. Freewill offerings in scripture, their sin offerings, those are required. You can't not bring a sin offering to deal with sin in the Old Testament. Free will offerings are just like they sound. You don't have to bring them. And the tabernacle was built with willing hearts. Freely given to God. And this is so key to to who God is and the service of God. Think of Pharaoh. The service of Pharaoh was not optional. It was not a free will offering. But the service of God is of a free and a willing heart. It has, there's no part of compulsion or coercion in it. God wants people who serve him gladly, who serve him willingly. There are some faiths who the whole faith is about submission out of fear, out of requirement. But our faith is a faith of submission out of gratitude and joy for who God is. Amen? Amen. It's the glory of Christ's kingdom. That his subjects have seen his goodness and gladly, giddily, give of the most precious things that they have to serve him. Amen? Mm -hmm. That's what we begin to see here as they see who God is. In 35, we get the call uh, of Bezalel. Then Moses, this is verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel... See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Benjamin, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God. Notice all of the descriptions that pile up here, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. He goes through all the different materials. He goes through all the different skills that are involved. And I think one of the things we're to learn from this, Bezalel, his name could mean something like image of God. And when people have preached and studied on Genesis, one question is we're made in the image of God, but what does that mean? Well, I want to suggest that what, what the scripture wants to tell us is one of the primary things it means is that God is the creator and that we are creators under him. That God is the maker and we are makers. We're called to be makers. And that making is everything from stories to food, to business plans, to tools, to... There's so many things. To songs, to governments, to gardens. We are called to be makers in line with God's making. Now again, Israel were makers in Egypt. But look at what their making was. It was monotonous. It was oppressive. It was for the glory of one man. It was destructive. It was destructive. That's a making that was destructive to them. But we're called to a totally different kind of making. And I love this description because what you see here is it's like the camp of Israel was busy. Everybody was working. People were spinning. People were carving. People were getting wood ready. People were melting gold down. People were were doing so many things. Everybody was busy with eager hearts building the house of God. So we're called to be makers. And it's worth noting that we're called to be makers and God likes our making because, again, that's what he made us for. But we have to keep in mind, too, that sometimes our making is like Pharaoh's making. We make something and it, it, it turns us in bad directions, right? It forms us in wrong ways. So there's a kind of making that is after God's own image, and that's what's going on here. Chapter 36 and verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Haliab. And every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing the freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough. For doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. Do you see the contrast with Pharaoh? Pharaoh said, you got to make bricks and I'm not giving you the raw materials to do it. And they had to go gather the raw materials and do it themselves. For the work of the Lord, what is there? There's more than enough. For the work of the Lord... Being done by willing and generous hearts, there's more than enough. This is the picture of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, whom the Lord sends speaks the words of God because God gives his spirit without measure. For the people of God doing the work of God from glad and willing hearts, there is always enough. There is always sufficient. Chapter 9 and 32 It says, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses. I don't have time to go into all the details, but hopefully that sounds familiar to you. All the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. In Hebrew, it's almost a verbatim repetition of the lines in Genesis when God finished making the universe. There's a rhyming here with the original making of the universe in the beginning. And there's all kinds of clues throughout the text that there's something about Israel's making of the tabernacle that is like God's making of the universe. And I think that's worth drilling down on and thinking about. In creation, what did God do? God did not make because he needed, needed anything. God did not make because he was bored. God made out of total gift, out of total overflow. It was totally a gracious thing he did. And what did he do? He made a universe. He made room for us. He he, he makes this thing. He's like, this is awesome. This is awesome. This is awesome. He makes this universe that is beautiful. He makes it for us to live in. So in the beginning, God didn't need to, but out of the sheer generosity of his heart, made room for us to be and to exist and to walk in fellowship with him. What is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is a place that Israel makes under God's direction to be a place for him to dwell in their midst. You see how it's a reciprocation? God of the universe who made everything now invites us to make a place, room for him to dwell in our midst, to invite us, to invite him in. So we're makers, but we're makers in particular of a place where God can dwell in our hearts as we cooperate with him. Amen? Human making matters. And he wants to dwell in a house that we participate in making. It's kind of like when you give your kids money to buy you Christmas gifts. And somehow it still counts. You know it's your money, but somehow it still counts. God makes our giving to Him count, even though it's all a gift from Him. Finally, at the end of the book, verse 34 then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, if you go all the way back to 32, or you go back to the beginning of this section when the cloud covered the mountain, there's a parallel. It covered the mountain but now God's presence is inhabiting something that humans made. And his presence there is even more powerful than his presence was on the mountain. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now notice Moses could go into the cloud on top of the mountain. He can't go into this cloud that's in the tabernacle. It's as if The scripture is telling us that God's presence on the mountain was a drop in the bucket compared to his presence in this tabernacle that he has invited them to build according to his pattern with him. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God's presence has gone from being this terrifying thing on top of the mountain to being this guiding and comforting and enlightening presence in the midst of their lives. God is remarkable, has condescended to come and dwell in the midst of his people, in the midst of this paltry thing that they have made. Let me draw just five uh, thoughts out of all of this for us tonight the first one is this, the revelation of the character of God that we get in the gospel of Mount Sinai and in the gospel of of Calvary captures and motivates us, not by guilt, not by fear, but by attraction. Hopefully the story of Sinai and Israel's sin there and God's willingness to still dwell with them frees you from thinking that we could ever measure up. And when you're freed from thinking we could ever measure up, it frees you up to be given to something a whole lot better than thinking about that. It frees you up to love. Amen? See, I think the cross and I think that this message at Sinai is meant to tell us that we can never come like we said at the beginning and say, okay, this time I deserve it. We always come as a gift. We always come out of his mercy. And that is meant to free us from the anxiety of wondering whether we can come so that we are free to love other people. Second, we're made to be makers. We're made to be makers. And hopefully that just inspires you that when you, when you make a cake, when you get a glass of water, you've made something. It's small. All the way To a big business plan or something grand, the building of a house. God likes it when we make stuff. Now we can make stuff that's sinful. We can make stuff that forms us in wrong ways. But God delights that we're makers and we're meant to be. And the church in particular, this is a picture of the church ahead of time. The church is meant to be a place where people with joyous and generous hearts are busy with skill and intelligence and energy putting together this house, gathering materials for this building that God is building in the earth where his glory dwells. Now, this is hard for us to grasp, but just as, the, as God's glory dwelt in the tabernacle, the scripture says that his glory dwells here. In fact, more so. And that's really hard to grasp on a Friday night. But it's the truth of the gospel. Amen. Yeah. And I think that this gives us a wonderful picture of the energy and the enthusiasm and the skill that they were giving to this task. And by the way, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Lord was a carpenter and that Paul was a tent maker. Because both of those skills went into making the tabernacle. And I bet you when Paul was making tents, he was like, oh, man, this is great. But we're making I'm making I'm a part of making this tent that God is building in the earth. Amen? The third thing, God always provides more than enough to build his house. The people of God who respond to his goodness and his grace and who want to give themselves energetically will always find more than enough to build his house. And I'm not talking about money, although it applies to that. If we're given to this great task, the most important task in all of life, That God has invested in from the beginning, he has more than enough to help us fulfill that task. Amen? The fourth thing. I didn't say this explicitly in the text, and we didn't have time to go through many of the features of the temple. But let me just remind everybody that they were to build according to a pattern. And the pattern is Christ. And one way I can illustrate this is with the book of Philippians. Paul says that let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, counted not equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself and he became a servant. He describes what Christ did in history. He gave up his rights, he gave up his reputation, he gave up the glory that he shared with the Father, and he poured out his life unto death for his friends. That's the pattern. And then Paul goes on to say, and by the way, and this is a bold thing Paul does. Imitate me as I imitate that pattern. You ever building something? I don't whether it's a puzzle or or I'm fixing my I'm fixing my dishwasher and I'm rewinding the YouTube video that I'm watching and I'm trying to figure I'm going back to the pattern repeatedly because it's not working out. The pattern that we go back to again and again is the mind of Christ poured out for us. And Paul says, I'm looking at the pattern, guys. I'm looking at it all the time. Imitate me as I'm imitating that pattern. And then he says, and you know, Timothy, I've got nobody like him. This guy's looking at the pattern all the time because he cares genuinely about you. He's constantly talking about you, praying for you. Here's a guy looking at the pattern. And by the way, Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus almost died for the sake of the gospel. I got no one else like it. He's also looking at the pattern all the time and being shaped according to the pattern. Amen. The pattern is our Lord and his mind set, if I can put it that way. And finally, our making, again, it matters. Our everyday making matters. But more than anything else, the labor that we do to be a part of building the house of God, that matters more than anything you'll do in your life. The things we do to love one another, to challenge one another, to encourage one another to bear with one another, to pray for one another. This is all the work that God has given us that he has said he's going to inhabit this. We're, we're gathering materials all the time. We're preparing materials. The boards aren't straight. They need to be plain. They need to be sanded. The, the fabric needs to be twisted. It needs to be formed. But he is preparing a place. And here's the joyous thing. We're gathering materials. We're loving one another. We're we're doing all the things we do to love one another and pour out our lives for one another as the church. And that is gathering materials and getting things ready. And guess what he's doing? He's preparing a place for us. And all of that goes together. And all of that reminds us of this invitation that we have to issue to the world... That there's a homecoming that we're destined for. It's dwelling with God. And I will say it, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I believe that in the scripture, the most powerful message we have is our lives together. And may we walk in this beautiful picture of the house of God being built then, and may we note his glory dwelling in our midst. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up.